Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So one of the greatest disappointments in the history of the Christian church involves the individual that I'm going to show your first contestant on your favorite game show and mine. Who it is? It's not Genghis Khan. That's a good guess. It is actually Kublai Khan. I'm going to give her like most of the credit for that one. It said one of the greatest disasters in the history of Christianity took place in the year 1271. Um, Niccolo and Matteo Polo, um, the father and uncle of Marco, oh, there is it. Um, they were visiting the great Kublai Khan, who at the time was the ruler of um, the most of the world that we knew about. He ruled over China, he ruled over India, all over the East, massive kingdom. So uh, Nicolao and, um, and Matteo shared the gospel message with him, um, the, this powerful ruler, the message of Jesus Christ. And he was attracted to it, interested in it, and this um, incredible message that he said it was. So he had an, uh, an amazing request for these two. He said, go to your high priest, he called him. He said, and send me 100 of your skilled uh, men to teach these people about your religion. And I will be baptized, and after that, my barons... All my great men will be baptized along with all of their subjects. And he said there will be more Christians here than there are in even your parts of the world. Nicolae and Matteo, um, they went to their highest religious authority, which at that time was uh, Pope Gregory X, requested 100 missionaries to go and do what, what Kublai Khan had requested, to go immediately. The Pope responded with this sentence. He said, those barbarians don't deserve the gospel. And absolutely nothing was done for at least 30 years. And then when they did do something, they sent two missionaries um, to go out and try to uh, spread some of the, bottom line, too few, too late. Now as a result of that, um, that delay, that I call it bold indifference um, by the Pope, the door was open to the Buddhist monks who were in that area, who were all too happy to move in, um, convert the largest empire that world history has ever known, by the way, convert them to Buddhism. Now, as ridiculous and absurd as that moment in world history um, sounds to us today, we're actually not that far removed from that mentality. Um, in fact, that mentality, um, the mentality that certain people don't deserve to hear the gospel or don't deserve God's grace or God's mercy and God's love in their lives. Um, that's been the theme throughout human history. It started with the, with the Israelites. Um, it's alive and active today, although maybe we try not to think about it or look right at it. And as we're going to see from our reading, our gospel reading, it was certainly alive and active in the days that Jesus was walking around here on this earth. Now, last week we looked at, um, at Jesus... Um, in his hometown of Nazareth. And by the way, I changed the title of the sermon to, from the last days in Nazareth to um, what happened in Nazareth. What, what, what went on here? You know, because all of a sudden these people turned on a dime. And so we, we have to understand what, what exactly was going on in their minds based on what Jesus was saying. But let me back up a step and, and set the tone for you and just kind of remind you what we talked about last week. So Jesus is in Nazareth. 
um, at the time where his family is responsible for the reading. So Lyle was our reader this morning, but the way they did it is that families at certain times of the year, different uh, weekends of the year, um, were responsible, actually different um, so, uh, sections of time during the year. Um, they would come up and they would be the readers. They would be responsible for, uh, for uh, being at the synagogue. So, all right, so uh, Jesus comes up and he's uh, responsible for reading, um, no coincidence, Isaiah 61, about the prophet, what the prophet wrote about the Messiah, about Jesus himself. So Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, um, this is what Jesus is reading in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners uh, will be freed. Okay, so now Jesus also reads the first part of Isaiah 61, verse, what we would call verse 2. But he, you know, obviously no chapters or verses where, um, where Jesus is rolling on the scroll. And it's interesting where he stops and what he doesn't add in it's also interesting why he doesn't add it. So let's take a look at that. So now, um, uh, the first part of 60, uh, 61 verse 2, I have a little A down there at the bottom. So it's just the first part of that verse. And this is what Jesus said. Um, he, God, has sent me to proclaim uh, that the time has come when the Lord will save his people. Um, this is the Good News translation, and I like the way it says that, because that's really what the point of the verse is, that Jesus, the Lord will save his people. Um, sometimes it talks about um, the time of the Lord or the day of the Lord, really going back to um, what they would recognize, Israelites would recognize, as the year of Jubilee, the 50th year when all the slaves, all the captives were set free, all the land was reverted back to their original owners. Um, but our mentality doesn't work like that. So we look at words like this. Uh, the time has come when the Lord will save his people. Okay, so we have the Messiah standing here on earth. Okay, and that's where he stopped. Rolled up the scroll and handed it back. Um, now, um, full disclosure, he didn't have to finish the line because everybody in the building knew what was coming next. And they were probably wondering a little bit, you know, what's your point or how are you going to expound on this? But let's look at what the next half of that verse says along with this. It says, he has sent me uh, to proclaim that the time has come when the Lord will save his people. And then look at this, it says, and defeat their enemies. He has sent me to comfort all who mourn and defeat their enemies. Now here, see, Jesus leaves off this second half of Isaiah's prophecy out of the conversation for now. Because um, we talked about last week what the Messiah was here to do. He was here to free us. Free us from what? Well, not the oppressors of Rome. Free us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. So even when we start thinking about the Messiah, and I talked about this on Wednesday night, when we think about the Messiah, when we think about salvation, we're a little sideways in our thinking too. And they definitely were in Jesus' time. They were waiting for that defeat their enemies. That's what they heard. They thought on the, the Messiah, they thought Isaiah 62 verse, or 61 verse 2, defeat their enemies. He's going to wipe out the Roman oppression, and we're going to be back to how things are supposed to be here. But again... That's what they're waiting for. Um, again, when we think of salvation, we might be misguided too, but they were certainly looking for a military conqueror, somebody who's going to come in and wipe out all this stuff to defeat their enemies. Now, on the, on, uh, along with that, it was widely understood and widely known that the Messiah wouldn't be um, revealed in his entire lifetime. The Messiah was going to come like Jesus did, someplace quietly, grow up, and then all of a sudden, boom, he was going to be on the scene, and he, we were going to recognize him as the Messiah. Exactly how Jesus played it out. The script couldn't have been written any more perfectly, and he couldn't have played it out any more perfectly. So he said, they understood who he was. Um, you know, Jesus said, 
Um, you know, I should also add the Messiah was going to, the way it reads, is going to take his rightful place, which is what Jesus did, I talked about last week, when he was reading and then he sat down in the seat of Moses there at the front of the synagogue. He took his rightful place, right? He took his rightful place of where he was going to be. And so um, the people were ready. Uh, they were willing to accept what was happening, uh, but they were still a little bit cautious, and understandably so. But they, were, they understood what was going on. They'd heard what was going on. They wanted to see right firsthand what was going on. So after Jesus sat down and after they had heard all this other stuff that went on, I'm going to get to some of that in a second. Here's what happened in verse 22. This is Luke 4, 22. It said, everyone was raving about Jesus, right? They couldn't say enough. So impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips, period. And then they said, well, you know, but wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son, right? Don't we know him? Didn't he grow up here? You know, wasn't he in my Cub Scout troop? And didn't we, you know, play, you know, kickball together and things? How can this be? You know, they had a hard time putting those things together. But there was no denying what they knew. Um, A, um, they're saying, we're witnessing what's going on here. And B, we've, uh, we've heard all these other things that are going on here. So Jesus knows their thoughts, obviously. Jesus knows their thoughts. So he starts to poke it a little bit and says, okay, he starts to challenge them a little bit. Um, challenges their understanding of the Messiah the same way we kind of challenge the, our understanding of the Messiah on Wednesday night. So he says, um, in response to their, their, their questioning out loud, um, don't we know this guy kind of thing, right? Um, seen as believing, but don't we know this guy? And Jesus says, I hear what you're saying and I know what you're thinking. So then in verse 23, um, he says this, he starts with this. Jesus said to them, he says, undoubtedly you will quote this saying to me, um, doctor, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Okay, so this is the um, Common English Bible. This is the translation. And I picked this one this morning for a couple reasons. Sometimes, um, in fact, and I think in the reading that we had this morning, undoubtedly you will quote this saying to me. Um, Sometimes that uh, that, uh, Greek word is translated as proverb. It's not an actual proverb, so you can't go to Proverbs and find what Jesus is talking about there. Um, the word parable might be a better translation for us, or this straight English kind of understanding, um, this saying to me. So he's gonna, this is just a common way of saying things, and we say it today just the same way they said it back then, probably because of this. But he said to them, um, you will say to me, um, doctor or physician, heal thyself, right? That's how we say it. Um, do here in your hometown what you've heard, we've heard you do in Capernaum. Okay, so now before we move on from here um, and talk about um, the things that were really bothering them, I just want to talk about um, the gospel writers, uh, the Bible and the, uh, the gospel writers in particular uh, for a moment. Because you hear all kinds of criticisms about the, the four gospels. Some people will say, well, they're so similar that it must have been rigged and, and we can't trust them because it's just too identical in places. And then other people completely say the opposite thing. Well, they're, they're so unlike in places, and they talk about different things. How can we possibly trust them? Well, you know, the, the truth is in the middle. You know, if four of us go on a trip, um, and, and we go from point A to point B, um, and we had a lot to do, like, on point B. So, uh, for example, my family, um, 
We lived in Alaska, and we took our camper, and we drove down from our, our station in Alaska when we were in the Air Force down to our station in Nebraska. It took us a good 10 days to drive through there. We took our time. But so uh, when, we, when we got to our destination, um, one of my uncles had like a 70th birthday party or something like that. And so we had a destination in mind. So if we were writing some memoirs about this, and we said, yeah, we left Anchorage, and then we went to this birthday party and kind of skipped the stuff in the middle, well, that's kind of sometimes what the gospel writers do. They skip some of that stuff. But some of the other gospel writers talk about all the disasters that happened along the way and some of the interesting things that happened along the way. So if you have four people doing the same thing, you're going to get four completely different stories, um, even in, in the timeline of that, if you see where I'm going for here. So I say that because Luke jumps right from um, Jesus' temptation in the desert by Satan. He jumps right to this story in Nazareth. But there's a gap. There's some time in between. We don't know exactly how much time, but we know there's some time in between uh, based on some of the things that Jesus just said here. You know, we want to see, they said in Nazareth, we want to see some of the signs that you did in Capernaum. Okay, so what did he do in Capernaum? Well, we don't have complete accounts of what's going on there, but we do have a couple of ideas of what happened there. Um, One of them is is significantly for what's happening here in in what Jesus is setting up and what we want to talk about today. Remember that whole Kubla Khan thing, you know, when when the the Pope said those savages, you know, don't deserve the gospel. Sometimes we feel like there's people that don't deserve the gospel. So now Jesus is in Capernaum and um, a nobleman comes up. So a Roman comes up to him and says, my son is sick, right? This happened several times, but this time in Capernaum. says, my son is sick, would you please heal him? And Jesus said, um, your faith has, has healed your son, so go home, your son is going to be fine. Okay, so um, the, one of the things that they heard in Nazareth was that Jesus was healing people that weren't in the Is- Israelites, weren't Hebrew people, weren't God's people, didn't deserve God's grace, God's glory, and God's mercy, but Jesus yet is still healing these people. You know, it might be when he's going through Samaria and he meets the woman at the well. He's talking with people that don't deserve God's grace, don't deserve God's mercy. That's the mentality that these people have, but Jesus is breaking that mold. And he's telling these people in Nazareth, it's not about who you are, it's about your heart. It's not about your lineage, it's about have you accepted Christ into your heart? Have you accepted God into your heart? So now he goes on a little bit about that. So there's also accounts of him um, healing entire towns. You know, he's sitting in the house, and he opens the door, and everybody's out there. They're bringing their sick, they're bringing their afflicted, and he's healing. And it says those words, healed every one of them in, in certain cases. In Nazareth, not so much. When we see Nazareth here back in Mark 6, it was like, man, he laid hands on a couple people, but their disbelief just drove him out, and he just, and he just left. So now, um, in, in, in response to all that, like I said, Nazareth wanted to see some of this. In response to that, Jesus says, unless you see wonders, um, you, know, you won't believe. And sometimes after, even after you see these wonders, um, you won't believe. So the question, or rather the issue at hand, um, wasn't the lack of evidence that was coming from Jesus. It was, it was the condition of their heart, the hardness of their heart. They were refusing to believe what they were seeing. Because remember back to Isaiah 61, verse 2, when it said, you know, he's here to set everybody free and, what, defeat their enemies. And they're like, well, until you defeat those enemies, I'm not sure I'm going to be on board with any of this because I'm not sure where you're going with this and and I don't approve of how short you're falling to my expectations. So there were enough miracles to satisfy everybody. I mean, no one in Israel, not even... 
Not even the religious leaders ever questioned, listen to me now, they never questioned the reality of Jesus' miracles. They watched them happen. They saw them happen. They experienced it. But then look at how many times Jesus heals on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees are standing there, and the healing, the miracle, just goes straight out the window, and they go straight to, hey, man, it's the Sabbath day, and you can't do that on the Sabbath day. Forget the fact that this man is walking now, or this hand is healed, or that this leper is cleansed. Forget forget that. This is the Sabbath day. What are you thinking? So the miracles were there, but their acceptance of that just wasn't meeting what was happening here. So the problem wasn't that, that the miracles weren't there. The problem was that they wouldn't accept the miracles, what the miracles were proving, right? That he was the Messiah. He had that power. He had that authority. Instead, instead, what they really demanded were even more miracles. They were like, ah, you know, we, we heard about some and we saw some before, but ah, what do you got today? You know, uh, you know pull another rabbit out of a hat or something here, right? So they, the, they demanded more miracles for a condition of their belief, or rather, I should say, a condition of their unbelief. But no amount of miracles would ever convince those who had hardened minds. No amount of miracles would ever convince those who had hardened hearts and minds, and they had hardened them themselves. John 12, 37 kind of points it out like this. It says, Jesus had done many miraculous signs before the people, but they didn't believe in him. Right? They saw the miracle, but they didn't understand what the miracle was about. We, we translate that word always as miracle, but really what the Greek word is, is attesting signs. Really as proof of who he was. Remember, it was also in Capernaum when Jesus healed that, the, when the four friends lowered the man onto the mat, right? When the mat down in front of Jesus dug a hole in the roof, lowered him down, and the first thing that Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are standing over there saying, only God can forgive sins. And he, Jesus essentially said, well, only God can make him walk, too. So let's just do that, just to prove that I have this authority. I'm going to show you this power, the miraculous signs, the attesting signs. I'm going to show you that power so that you know that I have this authority as well. That's the message he was trying to get to the people in Nazareth, and they were having none of it. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. When are you going to get rid of these Romans so we can get back to life the way we know it and get back to you know, worshiping whatever it is that we worship? So Jesus understood that, that, that humanly speaking, it was difficult for some of them in Nazareth to accept who he was. They were so familiar with him. Um, you know, could, how could he possibly be the Messiah? But everything that we see, everything that we know is pointing to that. So now Jesus says, all right, Giddy up, because he turns this whole episode on its head. He starts in verse 24. He says, but I tell you the truth. He says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He essentially says, um, you know, and then he says, speaking of prophets that were unwelcome at home, he said, how about a couple of my main man, how about Elijah and Elisha, right? Verse 25 um, starts out the same way. I tell you the truth. Um, and when you see that, you know, I, ta- I always talk about the word therefore to stop and really pay attention. When Jesus says words like, I tell you the truth, stop and see what he's talking about there. Because it's really uh, something to grab the listener's attention. Really something that Jesus is saying, this is important. Set everything else aside for a second and listen to what I'm about to tell you here. So he's emphasizing that importance. So he tells them a very well-known story. Right? Like I said, they, he didn't have to finish um, what we would call Isaiah 61, verse 2. He didn't have to finish that verse because everybody knew it. Well, he's telling these, uh, reminding them of these historical moments um, that they know very well. And they don't feel very good about it. I'm going to get to that in a second. So he tells them that story. Um, Elijah and the drought, right? Um, Jesus reminds them that there were many widows 
um, in Israel in Elijah's day. Now again, the, the Israelites didn't like this story because um, Ahab was king when this was going down. Um, Ahab was arguably the worst king in their history. And there's some, there's some characters that would line up there, but Ahab probably took the cake. Look at 1 Kings uh, chapter 16. It says, he, that's, this is Ahab, um, did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any other king of Israel before him. There were some doozies before him, but Ahab was the top of the chart. So he was influenced by his, his Gentile wife. Um, her name was Jezebel. Maybe you've heard of that lady. You know, they worshipped idols. And as a result, um, God shut through, through Elijah. God shut off the rain for three and a half years. And obviously now there's a great famine. So God says, you know, that, the, that there's some people we've got to take care of. There's some widows that we have to take care of. But instead of the widows in Israel, Elijah was sent to a Gentile widow. And this is not a story that Jewish people liked to be reminded about um, and would have been at least uncomfortable, if not angry, for Jesus bringing it up. Um, they went to, he went to Sidon, right? By the way, that's where Jezebel was from. So they were like, this is, this is even worse, right? All these, because they thought, right, we deserve God's grace, God's favor, God's mercy, and those people don't deserve it. Those savages in Sidon don't deserve God's grace, God's mercy, God's comfort. But Jesus wasn't through. He said, yet, he added yet another familiar and maybe uh, distasteful, maybe, story to the plot. Um, this one involved uh, the next person in line after Elijah is Elisha. Um, there were many lepers in Israel, it says. Um, but this guy had three strikes against him, right? This Naaman guy. He was, he, first of all, he was a Syrian. And not only was he from Syria, but he was uh, the military commander. Actually, in places it says that he was the commander-in-chief. So he was, he was and, and he's a leper. I mean, that's strike three right there. But in both of these cases, there was a moment of, of, of unbelief in the person that was receiving um, God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. The widow was not on board the whole time because things weren't going the way she wanted them to go. But then she came around and started believing, and then things started to go the right way. Naaman, um, Elisha told him, go dip yourself in the river a couple times and come back out and you'll be clean. And he was like, I'm not going to do that. And then all of a sudden he said, wait a second, you know, I'm going to obey, I'm going to do that. And when he obeyed and he got on board, softened his heart, he was healed. So now after Jesus tells those stories, and again, when we're reading these, we're thinking, yeah, and, you know, wouldn't help the widow, shouldn't we do that? Wouldn't heal the a leper, shouldn't we do that? But again, those stories didn't sit well with the, Israel, or with the, yeah, with the Israelites, with the Hebrew people, with the people in Nazareth, the, his audience that he was talking to. So now the mood changes in, in verse 22, right? And, I'm sorry, in verse 22, sorry, oh, in second, Jerry. In, in verse 22, they were, they were raving about him, right? Speaking well of him. Okay, so now, after he tells these stories, cue it now, thank you. So in verse 28, um, when they heard this, when they heard those stories about these Gentile, undeserving savages getting God's grace and God's mercy, and not only that, but get, Jesus reminds them, not only are those people getting it, but you weren't getting it. And they're outraged, right? These people are furious, right? And boy, they mean some business here. Now, they're treating him basically like a false prophet. And see, this all happened within minutes, right? 
Jesus is telling these stories as he's sitting in the seat of Moses. And they're like, whoa, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. Um, he hasn't gotten rid of our enemies yet, but that's going to be the next thing he's going to do. Right. So we're just going to wait and watch. And Jesus said, well, you know, let's just talk about a couple things here. Let's talk about God's grace. Let's talk about God's mercy. Let's talk about deserving these things and who we are and how things go. So they bring him to the top of a cliff and they're going to they're gonna dash him on the stones is the way the Old Testament says it. Got a couple pictures here. This is, this is actual footage in Nazareth. This is actually the cliff where they most likely, um, 98, 99% sure, this is where they took Jesus. There's a little plaque there and everything. There's another um, angle of it that shows how you know, treacherous of a fall that would be. That's actually right outside of Nazareth. The city, um, the, the cliff that the city was built on is the way the scripture reads. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a classic stoning. You know, in the, in the movies, when somebody gets stoned, um, you know, they're laying there in the, in the sand or in the dirt and there's a bunch of people around them with a bunch of rocks. Well, that's, that's one way it would have happened, but it's a much less common way. The more common way is they would go to the top of a cliff and they would um, push the person over or hopefully the person would just jump themselves and be dashed on the stones, dashed on the rocks. But if they didn't die from the fall, then some stones were put down on them. And uh, the, it's, it's a mob mentality, right? It's a mob mentality so that they're, they're pushing them over. It's kind of like uh, the equivalent of our firing squads, right? There's always those dummy rounds in the firing squad. So you, as a person, can say, well, my round was, was a, a blank, and I didn't have anything to actually do with the execution. So if a mob is pushing a person over the side, they can say, well, I was just kind of there, and I didn't really push anybody. I just kinda, it just kind of happened. So nobody can be accused of anything like that. So like I said, ideally, in a perfect world, the person would jump. Well, so they bring him up there to, to, um, to get rid of him, right? Because they don't like the way he's talking. They don't like the, the things that they haven't seen yet, right? They haven't seen, they've heard about him, but he's refusing to do these, and he's not acting the way we want him to act, and he's telling these awful stories. So this obviously is not the Messiah, so we're, we're going to get rid of them, right? But so then what happens? Instead, Jesus passes right through them. Right? And, and it, it's a miraculous passing right through them. It's not like they just backed off and said, ah, go ahead and go. Before they knew it, Jesus wasn't even there anymore, and they were like, wait, what just happened here? Right? So ironically, the people in Nazareth got the miracle they were looking for, but it didn't, sure didn't look the way they wanted it to look, because Jesus miraculously went through them um, in a supernatural way, escaped their attempt to, to, to murder him, because the way Scripture reads, it's certain, it just wasn't his time yet. He, we were just getting started here. It's not this time yet. So Jesus' point here is, um, is clear and unmistakable. I want, to think, want you to think back to Kublai Khan for a second. You know, the greatest empire that, the, that world history has ever known, Right? And it slipped right through our fingers. We had the opportunity. We had the, it was right there, you know, hot for the striking kind of thing and ready to go. But we let it go. We said, no, those savages don't believe or don't, uh, don't deserve that. The same way the people, the Israelites in Jesus' time were saying, um, those savages, those Gentiles, don't, believe, don't deserve God's grace and God's mercy. But here's the thing that God is telling us. You know, God has delivered uh, on his promise of salvation, Right by the arrival of Jesus. But here's the thing that Jesus is telling him, and we can't miss it. Unless we're willing, um, unless, may I should say you, unless you're willing to, to humble yourself um, like that outcast Gentile widow that, that uh, Elijah went to, or the Syrian 
um, leprous terrorist that, you know, that Elisha show went through, unless we're willing to admit our spiritual need, unless we're willing to admit our spiritual need, one cannot be saved. And the reverse is true. Anyone, the way the word reads, anyone who believes in him will have everlasting life. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, back in John 3, he said this, verse 3, Jesus said, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. What does it mean to be born anew? Well, it means that we recognize, we admit, we admit our need for a Savior. And that's when Jesus takes over. And the point Jesus is making to the people in Nazareth is this. He said, you're no different than anyone else. That stung a little bit. You're no different than anyone else. Jesus said, because you're no different than anyone else, no one comes to the Father but through me. And it's the same for you. But when we recognize, when we admit our need for the Savior, Jesus takes over. And then he says to Nicodemus this phrase right here, this verse right here, that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone, anyone, who believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. So that list of people that we have in our heads right now, it says, I don't think they deserve the gospel. I don't think they deserve God's mercy, God's grace, God's love. Jesus says, get rid of that. And know that everyone who believes is part of the kingdom. Amen? Okay, let's stand, please.